Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Gateway. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to open up the word. Um, a little spoiler alert here. Some of you, you know, this thing, you, you can record live uh, sports now. And some of you might have a sporting event recorded at home that's been happening since probably about 9 o'clock this morning. And you kind of don't want to find out the outcome of it. But I'm about to spoil it for you. This is one of my favorite parts of Independence Day is the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. It happened this morning. The most dominant in any sport athlete in history, Joey Chestnut, won again this morning. 14 titles, 14 titles. Not Bill Russell, not Michael Jordan, not Tom Brady. Nobody's come close to 14. And this morning he ate 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. That's about seven to eight seconds per hot dog. Just count with yourself. Think about it. One, and he does that 76 more times. So he broke his own record. His record was 75. It was a couple years ago, four or five years ago. Um, three years ago, uh, he was really affected by the heat, you know, because the meat sweats get to you and it's hot. You know, heat affects all athletic performance, including competitive eating. <laughs> Have any of you ever tried a hot dog eating contest? You ever, you ever done this? Yeah. Why don't, I feel like I've done like a race your brother to see who can finish one hot dog, you know, but man, we have this sign in our kitchen that I uh, made. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, you know, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, uh, but the full stomach of the rich man won't let him sleep. It's just kind of mostly a reminder to me, like after 9 p.m., don't eat that. That's what it is for. You know, like you, like I, I can't, if I eat one too many pieces of pizza now, I have trouble sleeping because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so full. And, and I think that that's the main reason why I, I haven't won the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest is the, the fear of the pain of like, what are the next multiple hours like? Like what's, what's Joey Chestnut feel like right now, you know? Like, how does he feel? What's going on? Because you're, you know, like if you, there's like some like vomit rule that you can't vomit in X number of hours, otherwise like you lose. Uh, so just like, what are that? Some of you who are like maybe nine and a half months pregnant, you're like, I know that feeling. You know, it's <laughs> 30 extra pounds in here. Yeah, I know that. But the, the fear of future pain, right? Fears like, so one of the things I've been thinking about as I've been reflecting on the significance of this day, the day that, uh, of the Joey Chestnut Championship as the, is the ways in which our fears inhibit, like control our behavior all the time, right? You, you don't do this because of future pain, uh, that kind of whole deal. And so fear is mostly, you know, it, it's mostly, most of our fears are, are, are pretty sane or rational. Like sometimes there's like a paranoia, like non-rational fear. Sometimes there's like a, a, a fear that, doesn't really belong there, but a lot of times our fears are um, pretty realistic, right? You know, I'm afraid of the pain that would come from eating 76 hot dogs. I'm also afraid of the pain that would come from eating like four and then embarrassing myself. That's probably what, probably what more likely would happen. Uh, but this whole concept of like our fears controlling and shaping us, uh, one of the things I want us to have in our, in our mind as Redemption Gateway is just reality that a lot of the times progressing into maturity is not having less fears, but it's actually having the right fears and having the right order of fears. Uh, when we want to like be healthy Christians, uh, you know, cancer is still scary, 
being shamed for your beliefs is still scary. Uh, the pain of death is still scary. You know, you still wear a seatbelt because being in a car accident is something legitimate. Uh, recklessness on the, of other people's recklessness, right? Being victimized is still a possibility. So this kind of, uh, you know, when we consider future possible pain and we make choices like get insurance or put on a seatbelt or kind of managing future, like this, these are still like rational, sober judgments. The question is like, what is the main controlling fear in our life? So pursuing rightly ordered fears is really the deal here. And what we see in this book of Nehemiah is that this, in this story in particular, is, not, is, is kind of a story about how Nehemiah rightly orders his fears in contrast with the nobles, uh, the, the landowners, the wealthy people. How do they, in a disordered way, manage their fears? Because all of us spend a lot of our lives managing our fears. Fear of future loss, financially, relationally, emotionally. Fear of missing out is what drives us to check stuff all the time. I mean, even just back in the start of the pandemic, I remember seeing all like the negative news and being annoyed by it. And so I deleted my news apps. And then um, I was checking my social media all the time. And then there's kind of like this fear of missing out thing. So I deleted my social media apps. And then I found myself just hitting refresh on my stock app, you know, um, because it was, you're kind of going, I'm going to have some type of fear that's going to give me something to be mad at all day, right? That's kind of, we, you, you got to have that level of someone, uh, if you have someone who's mad, you're mad at, then you don't have to take responsibility for yourself, you know? That's the, so then I'm checking the stock apps, never even knew I had a stock app until all my other ways of avoiding my feelings were deleted <laughs> from my phone. You know, I can't develop a drinking problem, I work at a church, so I was develop a check the stops check the stock app problem, same effect, you know, avoid feelings, you know. So most of the time what we do is we medicate our fears, we shove our fears, we rationalize our fears, but I want us to be people who order our fears. In particular, how, we, how do we take our fears and bring them up under the fear of God? What does that look like? How does that play out? And so what I want us to kind of come away with today is, you know, there's, you know, there are fires in Arizona and you hear a lot about fighting fire with fire and you see burning happening and you uh, look out and you go like, is that a preventative burn, a purposeful burn, or is that just a wildfire? You know, because there are good workers out there who are doing like purposeful fighting fire with firefighters to try to manage the future fires. And if we did more fighting fire with fire work, maybe we'd have less kind of random stuff burning down all the time. But just like you fight fire with fire, you fight fear with fear. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is how do we fight our fears with fear? Rather than being in denial about our fears, rather than, than medicating our fears, rather than um, lying to ourselves, I'm not afraid of that, when in fact we are, how do we fight fear with fear of the Lord? How do we fight our fear with fear? And we're going to see how Nehemiah does it, and we're going to hopefully, um, in, a, in a more liberating way, walk free of our lesser fears because the fear of the Lord um, controls us in, in a healthy way. So let me pray, and then we'll read some Nehemiah. Jesus, thank you for Nehemiah's story. Thank you for the way it speaks to us. Um, thank you for the way that Nehemiah wrote it down. And thank you for the way it's preserved for us here in the scriptures. I pray that you'd help us be mindful of the various things we're afraid of and enable us to think soberly about them 
while maintaining a fear of you that controls what we have going on. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So fighting fear with fear. So the book of Nehemiah, so here's kind of one of the main principles in biblical interpretation is you have to read each book according to its genre, right? So the Psalms are mostly poetry and then 1 Samuel is mostly history. If you try to read the Psalms like you read Samuel, you're going to misinterpret the thing. If you try to read 1 Samuel like you read the Psalms, you're going to misinterpret the thing. Like one of the ways we take the Bible seriously is by reading each book according to its genre. So read poetry differently than you read history. One of the things that's interesting about Nehemiah is the scholars are pretty divided on is this a history book or is this a wisdom book, right? Because the first chunk of the Old Testament is all history books, stuff that happened. And then that next chunk is actually the wisdom books. And Ezra and Nehemiah, among a couple others, are right at the end of the history section and right at the beginning of the wisdom section. And so there's a lot of scholars who say that this is a wisdom book and a lot of scholars who say this is a history book. And uh, Based on me kind of just look, saying those two things, you can look at the book of Nehemiah and see that there's a sense in which a history book, this is something that really happened to a people who were led by Nehemiah, and it's, it's edited together in such a way and written by Nehemiah in such a way that it's meant to be a, a tool of wisdom for us, that when we lead things, that especially when we lead things and there's resistance to how we're leading those things, there's going to be opposition, there's going to be process, there's going to be internal sabotage, external sabotage, and how do we manage the fears that come with having opposition in the midst of leading these things? And so this is a book about what happened in Nehemiah, and it's a book about what happens to all of us whenever we are trying to be faithful to the Lord or lead things in a way that honor the Lord in the midst of an unbelieving and crooked world. And so this is about Nehemiah, and it is for us. It's both wisdom and it is history. And in particular, this section, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 that we're in right here are all about the fears that try to distract us from the purpose that God has given us. It's kind of what I would call a sabotage sandwich, right? In chapter four, you have this external opposition, um, people who are resisting what's going on. In chapter five, you have the internal opposition. Uh, There's self-sabotage going on that Israel um, is unfaithful and they are actually the ones resisting what God is doing. In particular, the nobles are hesitant to follow what God is doing. And then here in chapter six, we get external opposition again. So there's kind of this sabotage sandwich, internal, external, internal, external that we're following right here. And chapter six comes to the end of this section. And the way this section concludes is by this real referendum on fear. Fear is sprinkled out through chapters 4, chapters 5, and chapters 6, um, but it appears, the word appears a ton in Nehemiah chapter 6. I wanted to show you these phrase, these uh, texts in the book of Nehemiah. They begin in chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, Nehemiah writes this down. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and fearsome. So the way this concept of fear is initially introduced, the way the ESV translates this is do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. One thing that's frustrating to me is when Bible translators have the same word in the same verse and in one way they translate it awesome and in the other way they translate it afraid. It's the same word, fear and fear. So he's af- don't be afraid of them. God is fearsome. He's not just awesome. He's fearsome. So the way this kind of um, dichotomy is set up is don't fear them. Instead, fear him. He's fearsome. Yeah, the neighbors with big militaries and all this stuff, there's something legitimate about being afraid of what these big Persian military might powerhouses are going to do. There's something legitimate to that. But remember, the Lord is fearsome. 
too, and not just fearsome also, but he's more fearsome. Then we see in chapter 5, 16, the servants lorded it over the people, talking about how not just the people with wealth were oppressing the poor, but actually the poor was oppressing the poor. And so what we see is that economic injustice is not just a class issue, the rich versus the poor, but it's actually a common to all people issue, that all people, if they have the chance to protect their thing at the expense of someone else's thing, the default more of the human heart is to do that. That's not just a rich versus poor thing. But the servants lord over the people, but Nehemiah does not because of the fear of God. Next verse we see is they all wanted to frighten us. This is what we see in chapter 6. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid. We see it a couple more times in Nehemiah 6. The prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The nations around us were afraid. And then the last one, Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. And so you get this afraid, 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 afraid thing. That if you're going to read other wisdom books like Psalms or Proverbs or whatnot, you see this fear, fear, fear. And actually like the main heartbeat of what the Old Testament teaches about how to be a wise person is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Meaning, uh, if you don't have a fear of the Lord, you do not have even the beginning of knowledge. How does this make sense? And, and what does this word fear mean here? You know, Robin asked earlier, fireworks people, not fireworks people. Like when I was in high school, I remember I was a fireworks person because I liked blowing stuff up. I liked pushing the limits. We actually spent a 4th of July on the beach in Mexico because of the fireworks were better. I mean, the, the fireworks that random people could just shoot off at any random time were better. You know, you buy them on the street, shooting Roman candles at people. You know, that was kind of the, I liked fireworks, right? And I was a big fireworks fan. But now we have this dog. And the dog is a Yorkie poo, which means paralyzed by fear. That's what Yorkie poo means. <laughs> and I should have known. You know, if you have a Rottweiler that's afraid, you can be disappointed, right? Like, you're a Rottweiler. Come on, what's the... But I, buy, I have this eight-pound Yorkie poo, which I should have known, paralyzed by fear. That's, that's my etymological made-up thing there. But this, this dog is like so triggered by fireworks that like three days ago, some neighbor down the street and around the corner set off a firework. Like, boom. It was not like a Gatling gun coming down the hall. It was like one boom. And then for three days, this thing has been like hyper-attentive, <laughs> nervous. Last night, I'm sitting in bed reading and I have a drink of, I have a cup of water, and I'm drinking a cup of water, and I set the cup down on my nightstand, and the dog flips out, thinking we're under attack, you know, the British are coming, bombs bursting in midair, and it's this dramatic moment, and the dog is like now standing up, perking, looking everywhere, and I'm trying to like say, Calvin, look, it was the cup, Calvin, it was the cup, look, it was just the cup, there's no fireworks, Calvin, look at the cup, and it's so paralyzed, and they're like hyper-attentive and aware that you can't even get it to snap out of it. And uh, so what, what I've seen in my dog, this was last night, and I'm just ready for tonight. You know, it's going to be a great. <laughs> you put him in the kennel, screech, crawls, yells. You don't want the dog to wake up the baby, so you have to, it's a whole thing. So tonight, we're going to have fireworks, and you're all going to be going, wow, look at these fireworks. And I want you to think about me. <laughs> and just the memory of me will ruin the fun you're having. Seth's poor dog. But this idea that fear arrests and grabs attention. You can't pay attention to anything else. Preoccupation, right? There's fear in one sense, like terror, and fear of the Lord sometimes means that. It's like uh, when the presence of God shows up, you're exposed as sinful and unholy, and there's 
the God of Israel, who is the righteous judge, sees you, that there are no hidden thoughts, no hidden deeds, no hidden internet history, and you're seen. Sometimes the fear of the Lord is used in that way. Be afraid because God sees everything that you think and do. In other places, and in particular in the wisdom literature, the fear of God's not describing terror of God or, or like fear, uh, fear like, Lord, have mercy on me, fear. It's, it's this attentiveness that if you're trying to live in creation without awareness of the creator, you're gonna have a bad starting point. You're gonna miss it. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to think and, and connect rightly. That if you drift into a functional atheism, you're dro- dropping out of a fear of the Lord. And most of the time we sin, whether it's sexually, whether it's relationally, whether it's gossip, whether it's slander, whether it's greed, whatever the ways that we sin, when I sit with people and even like when I consider myself and I try to think, how did I like end up sinning? It usually begins with dropping out of awareness of God's presence or you lose the fear of God and some other fear takes control of you. So the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. It's kind of like when, uh, you know, we've had this happen before where a cockroach comes into our house, right? And my wife's afraid of the cockroaches. And all of a sudden, it's like the blinders go on, right? And you see the cockroach, and you see it crawl, and you go, if I take my eye off that thing, I'm not sleeping for days, you know? Because it's, and so you kind of keep your eye on it, and you walk till you get your flip-flop. But there's like this, but it's arrested your attention, right? And so when we hear fear of the Lord, in particular in the context of the wisdom literature, I want us to think about attention, the attention-grabbing presence of God. Right? I have a friend who, um, she's engaged to someone who works for the Suns front office. And when she first started dating this person, she didn't really know who any of these Suns players were. And then she was telling me about how like, yeah, I was at this work event for my uh, boyfriend at the time. And there's a guy named Devin there. He seemed nice. <laughs> and I'm like, this relationship is wasted on you. You know, like, <laughs> wasted. Yeah. That, was, that was like a lot of months ago. She now knows all the people and she's like on a first name basis with all the son's starters, you know, and I'm, I'm angry at her, but it's mostly to cover up my jealousy, you know, and, but I just imagine if like um, Devin Booker walked in the room right now there'd be like this little buzz, right? Oh, did you see who that is? That's Devin Booker, son's, son's shooting guard, right? Olympian, representing the U.S., all-star, kind of snub, but not really. You know, he's, there's something like, there's something special about that guy, and he would, we would notice him, and even if you didn't know who he was, you would hear he was here, right? Some of you don't care who Devin Booker is. That's fine, you know, go to a different church. No, I'm just kidding. No, so, no, so, some of you don't, don't, don't care who Devin Booker is, and that, that's okay, you know, but you would hear Devin Booker is here, and you'd be like, oh, who's that? And like, oh, he's a big deal. And you're like, oh, I don't care. But you would hear about it, right? It would affect, affect the room. Like, this is why. Well, it's, we're not like afraid of him, terror, right? But there's like a reverence for, like, wow, he's an impressive person. He's a big deal for us and our city, right? He's not a big deal everywhere. Like if, if Devin Booker walked into a random room in, you know, um, India, nobody would notice or care. But for us here, like we care. And so that's like what the presence of God is like, right? He's in the room. 
There ought to be a buzz. Somebody different is here. He grabs our attention. We notice him. We notice him more than we notice other people. We don't stop noticing other people, but there's something grabbing to him. And so this, this is the concept of fear of the Lord. Is that he grabs our attention. We revere him in his presence. This is not a hypothetical conversation, but he's with us here in this place right now. Sometimes we go to church and we function as atheists, believing we're just doing songs and sermons. Like the spirit is in this room. God is with us. He's affecting us. He's arresting us. He's grabbing our attention. He's instructing us. He's calling us to repent. Like, do you fear God right now in this moment? I mean, are you aware of him? Lord, I sense you. You're here. We're two or more gathered. This is what he's talking about. There's a special presence of God in the assembly. And what we get here in this fear of the Lord in this story is all about how Nehemiah fears the Lord and all that he does. Because the nobles, what we see is the nobles don't have a good rap, right? So they're about to finish this wall. It's going pretty good. They're having a great time. He's doing a great work. Um, he's building this thing up. And then there's these out external people, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they've been against him from the beginning. They're upset. They don't want Israel to do well. Because if Israel does well, that means people will take Israel's God seriously. And we know this is the case because when they finished the, the wall in verse 15, it says, when the wall was finished, um, all of our enemies heard of it and the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly at their own esteem. I mean, they thought they were great, but when they see that Israel's God completes the wall, their self-esteem drops, which is a healthy self-esteem drop. Some of us would be well served if our self-esteem went down and our esteem of the Lord went up. They see the Lord move and the nations fear because they're like, that God pulled off building a wall in the midst of Persian rule under King Artaxerxes. What a project. And so they're afraid of what this represents. One of the things you see here is how fear is contagious. Right? You know fear is contagious. Anxiety is contagious. That it spreads. Here it's like when all our enemies heard it, all the nations were afraid and fell greatly at their own esteem. Like, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? You know, we're actually dog-sitting two dogs right now, which, based on what you know about me, would you let me dog-sit your dogs? <laughs> but it's like if a car door shuts, like from seven houses down, all three of the dogs <laughs> rile each other up, and so you're going, no, 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 no. And now my son just points at the dogs and goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> Even when nothing's wrong, but you see the, their anxiety is all contagious, it spreads, right? Nehemiah's fear of the Lord was contagious. And it's contagious to us. We can look at how Nehemiah was resolved, strong backbone, direct, unfazed, not tossed to and fro by the social pressures of an unbelieving world, but was committed to what God was doing through him. And we can look at his story and say, yes, by the grace of God, I want to be like that too. That we can be people who fear the Lord above all other fears. But the nobles are held out to us an example here of being not great people. So these foreigners the, who don't want to see Israel succeed tried to like woo Nehemiah into this assassination plot. Hey, let's go to the plains of Ono and let's um, do a thing. It says, but they intended to do me harm. So these, these foreign leaders are misrepresenting their intentions in order to try to entrap Nehemiah, kind of like a cut off the head, you stop the, the, the body thing. If we can get rid of Nehemiah, maybe this work would stop. So they, they intend to do him harm. And Nehemiah just says, I'm not doing that. 
I'm not coming down. Why should I stop this great work when I've come down to you? I want all of you who have problems with like boundaries and rest, whatever it is, to write down this verse and memorize it. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? I had a mentor one time tell me uh, when it came to like working with boundaries in the church and it was like my, when I've been a pastor for like five minutes, he said, call every time you have slated to hang out with your wife an appointment and people will respect you. If you just say I'm hanging out with my wife, people won't listen to that. <laughs> I mean, that was true. My old church is a lot less healthy than this one, generally speaking. You know, here, here, you know, so, but like this, uh, Eugene Peterson talks about this. He says, we used to have an authoritative Bible. Now we have an authoritative calendar in our culture. If you say, oh, I can't do that because it's the Sabbath day, people would be like, just do it. You know, oh, I can't do that. I have an appointment. Oh, okay, cool. Sounds good. Right. You know, now if like if you, if your wife's expecting you home at 430, you know, say you have an appointment at 4.30 and people will let you leave every time. But I want us, whether it's spending time with family, whether it's um, trying to close a deal we've been working on for a long time, whether like when you're doing what you know God has called you to do, not just being distracted and using an excuse, but I mean, I want all of us to have the freedom of conscience to say, I'm doing a very important work, I can't come down. <laughs> this focused attention on what God has called us to do is part of what the fear of the Lord produces. Produces this focused love that I can look at what God has called me to do and I don't have to look at, because everyone is constantly saying no to what would be otherwise good options all the time. There's a lot of great options. What has God called you to do in this season? How can you do with focus what you are supposed to be doing? Because a lot of other people have other callings and they want you to get in on their calling, which is understandable. People tend to be passionate about what their calling is. But that's not your deal. You do your deal and use this verse. I'm doing great important work. I can't come to the, it's, seems true here. Like we have a great men's breakfast every like once a month on a Saturday. I think it's amazing. But some people need to say, Saturday morning, I'm doing great work. I can't come to the men's breakfast. Whatever that is. Right? Sometimes there's, there's just a lot of different things competing for our time and our energy. And I want everyone at Redemption Gateway to recognize that we need to fear the Lord do what he's called us to do, and not bow to social pressure in any direction. That'd be the healthiest thing for us. It's not what the nobles do, though. They try to get him to come down. For the fifth time, what ends up happening, Sanballat says, they sent a servant with an open letter. So open letters nowadays, you know, people do this all the time, up frustrated employees, an open letter to the management of Apple. And it's like, oh, great, here comes a millennial complaining about something, you know, and... <laughs> And that's kind of what it tends to seem like. An open letter to, you know, I wanted seven weeks of vacation time. You know, gave me six, you know, oppression, you know, or something like that. And, it, and so there's an open letter this time. They're trying to get him to meet with him. They won't do it. And so now they send this shamey public letter that says, in the letter it's written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall, according to these reports, which became, and you wish to become their king. So these people who are resisting what's going on are telling Nehemiah, we know your real intentions and we're going to tell everybody your real intentions. This is one of the ways that you can tell if you're a sabotager or not. Is if you find yourself knowing other people's intentions, you are either God or a sabotager. It's dangerous when you start saying, I know people's hearts 
What's ironic is these people are misrepresenting their intentions while saying, I know Nehemiah's intentions. It's called projection, right? I'm concealing my intentions, therefore you must also be concealing your intentions. When you don't have a pure heart, you assume other people also don't have pure hearts. They sabotage. This is a death sentence to Nehemiah. If King Artaxerxes really thinks that Nehemiah is going to rebel and make himself king, Nehemiah is gone and done for sure. Then Nehemiah responds. Instead of saying like, okay, fine, please stop. This is too much. I can't take the pressure anymore. I'll stop. That's not what he says. He pushes straight back on him. Verse 8 says, no such thing as you've said has been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. You're telling stories. I'm not dealing with it. Nehemiah does not cave to social pressure. Some of you, your biggest fears have to do with your employer finding out your position on sexual ethics because you'll be canceled or fired or re-educated. Some of you, one of your fears includes this, what if my children grow up and do blank? If that happens and it's on you, it's your fault. This shame, the pressure. Some of you have been scared to confront that person you need to confront because it might go bad for you. Fear of future loss, either relationships, a financial position, of possessions. Fear of loss, whether it's the, the, the pressure of the crowd or the, the approval of a culture, handicaps people most of the time, but it does not handicap Nehemiah. He says they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. See, one of the things here we see is that it's actually the function of the fear, not the fear itself that is the threat. Sometimes we feel shame for being afraid, um, but it's actually the focus in this book is not um, the, the fear itself being the problem, but it's the, how we handle our fear that's the problem. See, what it says in verse 9 is, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and then it will not be done. Saying the function of the fear is to hopefully make them stop working. Likewise, we see in verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So most of the time, fear is not the sin, but it's how we handle our fear that is the sin. Medicating it, avoiding it, avoiding faithfulness because of fear. (coughs) Excuse me. What is fear preventing you from doing that you know you need to do? Because what's distinctly Christian is not that we have fears or don't have fears, but it's in the way that we process our fears. We order them underneath the fear of God. And this whole goal of trying to get Nehemiah to be afraid, trying to get them to stop the work is the point. What are you afraid of? What's your worst nightmare? For the nobles, their worst nightmare was loss of finance, loss of position, loss of influence. See, the nobles are not doing very good for themselves. Their biggest fear is being on the wrong side of history. You ever felt pressure to that direction? Don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Like we know where history is going. See, back in chapter 3, you see the, Nehemiah, the nobles looking really bad. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but the nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. When everyone's doing their part to serve God, the nobles won't stoop to do it. I can't do it, won't do it. One, they consider serving the Lord stooping, and two, they still refuse to do it. These are the landowners, the oligarchs, the powerful people. They won't basically serve in the way that God has called them to serve. Not only that, but we see in Nehemiah chapter 5, it says that I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, you are extracting interest each from his brother. That the nobles, the same people who were refusing to serve, are now oppressing the poor. 
that there's a famine coming through the land, and when a famine comes through the land, if you're already poor, you don't have much to lose. But when you are wealthy, you have a lot to lose. The nobles have a lot to lose. And what ends up happening is they fear the famine more than they fear the Lord. And so they extract from the people who they could extract from. See, the nobles are not asking the question, how can I most effectively oppress the poor? They're asking the question, how can I do what's best for me given the circumstances? And it ends up oppressing the poor. Nehemiah refuses to do this because not just being preoccupied with financial position or influence, but he's preoccupied with fear of the Lord. That when you are mindful of God and his presence, you ask the second question, which is how will this affect other people? So the nobles, we know that they're not servants, that they're okay with extracting interest from the poor and getting them stuck in a downward cycle of economic difficulty. And then here's the kicker right at the end of Nehemiah 6. After they finished the wall, the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days of project, verse 17, it ends. Moreover, meaning on top of all this, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. Tobiah is the enemy oppressing and trying to resist Israel and the people within Israel. This is like interference, foreign interference in process. It all comes out. Oh, you've been trading text messages with that person who's been my enemy. This is betrayal to Nehemiah. I thought we were on the same team. Turns out you were on the other team the whole time. The people with money are more interested in protecting their stuff than on pursuing faithfulness to the Lord. A lot of what the scholars will say is that um, the nobles thought Israel was going to lose this thing. And so from the very beginning, they started aligning themselves with who they thought were going to be the winners. Israel does not have a shot against Persia. Israel does not have a shot against the Arabs. Israel does not have a shot in their project. And so I'm going to begin to distance myself from Israel and saying like, hey, when you guys come and take over, remember me. Here's what my stuff that I own is. Don't take it. This happens all the time in world history. When the foreigners are coming in to invade a nation and the rich people say, whatever you want, as long as I get to keep my stuff. Fear of future loss, fear of financial loss, fear of position. The nobles are spineless people tossed to and fro by the fear of humanity. And we're, we're just like them. All the time, we're doing reputation management. All the time, we're concerned about how it's going to play and how it's going to play out. But Nehemiah is different. One of the things that's beautiful about this story is the way that Nehemiah keeps trying to be made afraid. It says, and Tobiah sent letters to me to make me afraid. He's going, just like Tobiah was sending letters to the nobles to make them afraid and succeeding, Tobiah was sending letters to me to make me afraid and failing. Why? Because Nehemiah has his fears rightly ordered. Some of you will experience stupendous financial loss in the next couple of years. Some of you will have terrible things happen to you physically and you hope you have good insurance before it comes. Like bad things really do happen. Being aware of and cognizant of and paying attention to those possibilities does not make you a crazy person. And telling people who are afraid of a possible car wreck who are putting on their seatbelt, hey, fear not, is pretty dumb. So the answer is not to have less fears, but the answer is to order our fears, saying, I want to fear God more than I fear a car wreck. I want to fear God more than I fear future financial loss. I want to fear God more than I fear being on the wrong side of history. Because when I understand history, that Jesus, God most high, is the Lord of it. 
And ultimately, there is no such thing as being on the wrong side of history and being on the side of Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we take a short-term view like these nobles did, there may be wars lost and wars won. But if you take a long-term view where there is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there is no being on the wrong side of history or on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can, like Nehemiah, fear God above all else and pay attention to him above all else. That his voice can be louder. We don't have to be slaves to our fear because the fear of God is perfect because he is unconditionally loving. That he's perfectly attentive. That he's kind and gracious and generous. And so giving undue attention to him actually helps erase and eliminate all of our anxiety and our fear. And so it's about ordering our fears, not removing our fears, the way that we progress in maturity. And here's one of the beauties about the book of Nehemiah is that we don't have to just teach it like we're Jews. Because in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah loses it. He starts pulling out people's beard hair. He starts hitting people. He starts feeling and fearing the loss of control and influence. Israel won't listen to me. He goes crazy. He goes mad. The guy who was fearing the Lord a couple chapters ago is all of a sudden trying to do it on his own strength and intimidate people into obeying God. Not a good move. And so we get to, as Christians, look to the person Jesus. Jesus, who in Matthew 10, verse 28 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus doesn't say fear not, fear. He says fear not because there's something more to be afraid of. And that's God, the judge, the one who sees and hears and knows all things. But the beauty of this is that we can hear these words from Jesus and see them as fulfilled because Jesus was destroyed in the wrath of God on our behalf. That we fail to fear the Lord and we fear other things all the time. And only Jesus, God in the flesh, the sinless, perfect, loving God, fears the Father at all times and in all places and is murdered because of it in our place. That God can destroy us in hell, but instead he chose to punish Jesus in our place. And so this terror side of fear, this be afraid of the God who judges and sees, That's non-factor for us as Christians anymore. Instead, now we have the fear of awareness, of attentiveness, of being arrested by the gracious King of kings and Lord of lords who now looks at us and sees us and says, fear me. Don't be afraid of me in the terror paralysis sense, but pay attention to me because I'm a good father and I'm a good teacher and I won't do to you what other people do to you. And so we are free to fear God, not afraid that we're going to be punished. But we can fear God and that he grabs our attention and says, this is the way. That we can now have this clear conscience and say, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down and mess with that. That when the crowds disapprove, when the kings disapprove, when the algorithms disapprove, when our family disapproves, when our parents disapprove, when our children disapprove, We know we have the approval of God most high. And so the fear of the Lord is actually liberating, not oppressing. And Nehemiah shows us how he does this, and he shows us how he fails, but it's ultimately Jesus who fears the Lord in a way we never could and never would. But we fight our fear with fear. So here's my prayer for us as the Redemption Gateway, that we would be people who don't medicate our fears, who don't deny our fears, who don't just suppress our fears, but that we be people who order our fears, who would fight fear with fear, and the fear of the Lord would grab our attention, and that we would, as soon as we notice we're drifting into some type of functional atheism, we'd be brought back. 
because God is with us and he's in the room. Let me pray. Jesus, help us fear you. Help us be aware of you. Help us be mindful of you. Help us notice you. I pray that we would revere you because you're significant and you're substantial. And God, when these other fears, with these other voices, when they um, vie for our attention, when they uh, compete for our affection, I pray that we would um, help those things submit to you as quickly as possible. God, when we're being sabotaged by this ourselves or by our neighbors or by the media, I ask that you would enable us to have strong spines, not because of ourselves, but because of you. I pray that as we sing, as we pray, as we worship, as we receive communion, that all these things will be instruments that help us be more aware of your presence and more connected to the author of reality. Amen.